Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Leonard Zinn. Leonard Zinn is a bike designer and frame builder with a shop in Louisville, Colorado. He was a member of the U.S. Olympic cycling team and worked with Tom Ritchie on some of the earliest mountain bikes. He's also the author of Zinn and the Art of Mountain Bike Maintenance, which is one of the world's best-selling guides to mountain bike repair. Thanks for joining me, Leonard. Thank you. So tell us a bit about your background. How'd you get into designing and building bikes? Well, as you said, I was on national cycling team and, you know, once that happens, you generally have sponsors providing you with your equipment. And I had one there, there's a race, the Iron Horse Classic in Durango and the classic, it's a stage race, but the, the main event is the race from Durango to Silverton where you're actually racing the iron, the, the, uh, it's called the iron horse. Cause you're racing the narrow gauge train. That's famous. Oh, cool. Silverton. And, um, and I won that race in 1980 and I set the course record by like more than five minutes. And, hmm. and, um, and so I was, you know, kind of a heavy favorite to win it again. And, 81 and but by then you know i was on a little tiny team in 1980 when i wanted and and uh so now i was you know on a strong trade team and had a sponsor provided bike that i just got mm-hmm. and there's two 11,000 foot passes in that stage and and um uh coming down the backside of the first pass my bike just started shaking uncontrollably oh no and uh you know there was nothing i could do except put the brakes on and just let the group go and and then the same thing happened on the even steeper descent down into silverton on the after the second climb oh man and it was sort of at that moment that you know i i used to make jewelry when i was in high school and then when i was in college i i actually taught jewelry making Huh. with the leisure program at Colorado College and I had a degree in physics I was and I'd done my senior seminar on the stability of a bicycle I'd written these computer this computer program in this you know ancient oh, wow. computer language called Fortran about mm-hmm. determining the stability of a bike and and um so I figured I had the craft from jewelry making to be able to do it and that I had mm-hmm knowledge and interest from my physics background to to be able to do it as well and so i was like that's when i decided you know i could i could make a better bike than this myself (laughs) (laughs) so um that's what sort of started the started the whole process and i um didn't actually i guess i'd already had started i'd i'd made one bike in the the year after i graduated from college while i was training at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. I was also working in the physics department at Colorado College as the mm-hmm. paraprofessional. And, um, and uh, you know, I'd, in those days, you want a lot of bike parts, not, not a lot of, <laughs> for, because <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't win much money. And, um, and I really wanted my girlfriend, who's now my wife of 39 years, to, um, to have a nice bike. And so I built her a frame while I was, in the physics shop there. And then I had Bill Woodle, who was this really famous mechanic of the national team. I had him help me with all the finishing stuff over at the Olympic training center. Mm-hmm. 
and put all those parts that I'd won over time on the on the bike. So I I I had that little experience of this one thing of making this frame and and then um and then really what happened was it, 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 late in that season in 1981 I I tore my gastrocnemius muscle racing in the Tour of Ireland stage race. Oh wow. And after I got back from Ireland it just got worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Um calcified and stuff and it just and I couldn't stand being around Boulder where everything for me was other than my girlfriend was about bikes, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and I, um, moved to Northern California and started working for a geophysics company, got laid off and then just was flipping through the phone book and saw Tom Ritchie's name. And I called him up and just so happened that his second employee ever had quit that day. And so I became <laughs> employee ever and uh me and this guy devin and tom we made 100 frames a month and and that was i'd heard about mountain bikes but i'd never seen them but you know richie was the only one making that kind of scale of mountain bikes in the world Mm -hmm. yeah so you know i learned an enormous amount from him and he's you know he's a good friend and he's only a year older than me or something it's just that he'd started his company when he was 16. So (laughs) last October celebrated, went out to his place for celebrating the 50th anniversary of, of Richie bicycles. Whereas this past summer we celebrated the 40th anniversary of Zen cycles. So same age, he just started his business a lot sooner. And yeah, anyway, uh, in order to heal this knee injury it just wasn't healing out there in california anyway so i came back to boulder to be treated by andy pruitt who's famous in the bike world as the sort of the orthopedist of cycling elite and mm-hmm. and the bike fitter who trained everything you know who created what retool came out of and all the bike fitting uh-huh. systems basically are based on on andy pruitt's work and hmm. so and my grandmother left me $10,000 when she died about that same time. And I used that to start Zen Cycles and never really thought it would become a career, but <laughs> <laughs> wanted to build some bikes and, and, uh, ended up, you know, being a 40 years now, almost 41 years into it. Yeah, that's great. So Zen and the Art of Mountain Bike Maintenance was first published in 1996. And from what I see, it's now in the sixth edition. What's changed over the years in the book? Well, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. I first wrote the book, 1996. So on, I, I remember the cover. The cover of that one, the first edition, was the only one that had a picture of me on it. The other ones are all just a picture of a bike. Really? And that one, I was holding a, an early like RockShox Judy suspension fork. So there were okay. suspension forks had just come in. So that was one reason to write the book because nobody mm-hmm. how to work on those. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, you know, you, the, you had cantilever brakes. There was certainly no rear suspension. Mm-hmm. I don't think there were even any carbon bikes. <laughs> All bikes were made out of metal, you know, or a few titanium, yeah. basically steel and aluminum was where it was at. There was no such thing as a threadless headset at the time. It was hmm. threaded, threaded headset with a stem with a quill. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of changes. Would you, would you say today's bikes are easier to work on than they were 10 or 20 years ago or, or are things getting more complicated? Well, it depends on if you actually want to completely overhaul things like at the time. Hmm. You know, there was no such thing as like one of these cranks now, you know, the the crank arm and the spindle are one piece. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's a sealed sealed bearing in the in the bottom bracket and, and at that time it was all loose ball bearings and you know, separate right. separate crank arms. And so those were harder to work on in the sense that you needed more tools in order to take them apart. But the mm-hmm. But you could completely take everything apart down to, right. you know, now you just replace the bearing and a cartridge bearing or even, you don't even a lot of times do that. You replace the entire bottom bracket, the whole cups with the bearings in them. Mm-hmm. 
you you don't have the ability to work on the individual parts. Also, you know, a lot of like a cantilever brake, you could replace individual pieces of the cantilever brake. Mm -hmm. And now like modern disc brakes, you're not even allowed to get into that other than tape, <laughs> you know, right. And even there are even designed that you can't, can't really overhaul much of anything inside them. You just can change the pads and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then of course, electronic shifting, you, and, and even the STI, because 96, I guess there was click shifting already then, but those were thumb shifters, you know, on the mountain bike that you can, mm -hmm. and, and um, but you really don't do that anymore. <laughs> you kind of replace yeah. the shifter. And, right. Yeah. So, I mean, in, on the one hand, things are easier because we don't have to work on them. We just replace them. But, you know, on the other hand, I mean, maybe it's kind of wasteful and, and we're losing out on kind of understanding our bikes from a different level. Do you think, do you think one way is better than the other or are they kind of good trade-offs to have? Well, from a purist perspective, which, you know, I mean, I've always kept everything as long as I possibly could and always make everything mm -hmm. as long as I can possibly make <laughs> Whatever it is, clothing, cars, anything, you know, yeah. bikes and are no exception. And, and I do find it frustrating, like with a ski binding, you know, that break one little dinky part on the ski binding and there's nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and I, um, but on the other hand, in terms of, your time invested if your main focus is on riding the bike <laughs> then you can get back on the bike much faster <laughs> with today's right. bikes because you just replace this whole modular unit whatever it is that was failing boom put it back in mm -hmm. and removing cranks for instance is a lot quicker process right so I, I can't say one's better than the other. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's trade-offs either way. And like you mentioned, depends on kind of who you are and, and where you have that trade-off between time and money and where your interests lie in terms of biking. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it is about just being able to get out and ride again as quickly as possible. And um, at the same time, there are those who enjoy tinkering and, you know, figuring that stuff out. So I want to talk about building t bikes for tall riders. How did you get into to building mountain bikes and, and bicycles for, for taller folks? Well, you know, I told you that story about coming down the descents in the Durango Silverton Iron Horse race mm -hmm. and skimming like mad. Well, that's a function of being tall. Okay. You know, I've always been a pretty lean guy. At the time, I was 6'6 six, six and 156 pounds. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the taller the bike, the more torsional flex it has. I mean, that's probably mm -hmm. that it just can't control the twisting motion very well. Mm -hmm. I'm bikes were um, all bikes had the same diameter tubing because it was all lugged, lug construction. So the lugs lugs dictated not only that the tubes are round, but also what size they were. And those were really quite skinny at the time. We, mm -hmm. that's just what bikes looked like. But now you look at bikes like that and like, Whoa, what skinny little tubes, <laughs> right? They control the bike from twisting back and forth too much. And, and I knew from a physics perspective, you know, basically uh, to shimmy that high speed shimmy is, is a resonance, resonance mm -hmm. frequency on where you know you whatever you're hitting on the road the little bumps in the wind and whatever environmental effects that you're dealing with are at a similar frequency to the frequency of vibration of the frame the frequency of twisting one back and forth oscillation mm -hmm. and the bigger the frame the longer that period of so the lower the frequency, because it takes longer to twist it back and forth in one twisting thing, whereas a small, right. much higher frequency, shorter period of oscillation. And so you'd never encounter the, the environmental effects that would make a small frame do that. So mm -hmm. 
<clears throat> that was really the impetus was like, Jesus Christ, these guys don't know anything about <laughs> big people. Because, you know, at the time, <laughs> everybody was racing on an Italian bike, you know, and Italians, mm-hmm. you're smaller people than yeah. Northern Europeans. And, 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 um, and so that was how it started. And, and then as time progressed, you know, initially I sponsored a women's racing team for a decade or so. And hmm. oh, for a long time, that was a really good market for me, making really small bikes for women because they're hmm. bikes for women in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, if, you, if you were a small person, you ended up like on a kid's bike kind of a thing. And it right bike of similar quality to the high-end racing bikes any of the big manufacturers and so so i had a very loyal following among among women bike racers but then then at some point you know the big companies just realized that women actually spend a lot of money on bike stuff <laughs> right so started initially you know those were those attempts at women specific designs were just literally shrink it and pink it and it didn't provide a a good performance advantage but now you know there's it's not only everybody's small at some point in their life so even right it, you know kids kids and kids races are riding some pretty sweet bikes these days you know <laughs> so that whole market kind of dried up for me but the tall bike market was just a natural obviously mm. being so tall myself and and um and it just i just sort of veered that way and then as time went on it just now, you know, I mean, I, of course, build bikes for any size people, but but mm-hmm. just don't have any competition in that niche. Yeah, that's interesting that, that it sounds like the first kind of the impetus for that was was actually like structural, for lack of a better term. I mean, the performance of the bike just wasn't what you wanted or what you would expect uh, as a tall rider. What about like the bike fit? Are there challenges to fitting a taller rider? Like what what are the things that you need to do that are maybe a little bit different from for a tall rider than than somebody who's more average height well yes if you're sticking with stock components so which is what i would have been when i was racing on national team you know eddie Bor- mm-hmm. davis eddie b was the national team coach at the time he did the fitting for me and i had 180 millimeter cranks which i'd gone to great lengths to find at the time Mm-hmm. And it just made sense to me that I should have the longest cranks that you could make. <laughs> right. And he said, oh, you need longer cranks. And I'm like, they don't make any longer than this. He's like, oh, sure. They make, they make, you know, he was a, <laughs> so he spoke kind of funny, uh, but he, um, uh, they didn't. And there was no other alternative for me other than the 180 millimeter. But even that most other riders are like, oh my God, 180 millimeter. That's <laughs> and everything. But you know, if you think of it as a percentage of leg length, my inseam is almost a thousand millimeters and the crank is a mm-hmm. millimeters. So that's 18% of my leg length. Okay. Well, most people on a, you know, 172.5 millimeter crank with a 820 millimeter inseam, that's like 22%. Hmm. Yeah. And so that means that the taller rider on the stock size crank the angles that the hip and knee are going through are much less than the angles Hmm. smaller person with a much higher percentage of their leg length being in the crank is going through. Mm -hmm. So that means that one thing it means is that the angle between the hip and the, and the thigh, when the, when the foot is at the top of the crank circle, that that angle at the hip is, is more open on the tall rider Hmm. Okay, that they can fold over further so that, you know, that's that you definitely see in the pro ranks when you see really tall, tall guys in the tour de France, there's this tremendous amount of drop from their saddle to their handlebars, right? Is maybe six to 10 inches, huge amount that Hmm. most never tolerate. Well, it's a function of the fact that that crank is disproportionately short compared to their, to their leg length that allows hmm. them to over that far. It's not that there's anything different about the physiology of a really tall person that they can fold over more. It's just that <laughs> coming yeah. high toward their chest. And that's what most fitters are dealing with when they're fitting tall. Mm-hmm. 
is they're fitting them with standard size cranks. And so, so that's a fundamental difference is that you, you'd be like, whoa, you know, you can have a whole lot of drop from this saddle to the bar. Mm-hmm. Other issues are that as the saddle goes, the seat angle is angled somewhere, you know, 73 degrees, 72 degrees, something like that on most bikes. And, mm-hmm. and as the seat goes angled up more and more and more and it gets taller and taller, that means that the seat is literally further and further back over the rear wheel. Right. Which the bike's going to tend to wheelie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have tall riders. That's a problem all the time on road bikes. It's certainly on mountain bikes, but also on road bikes, just of being in the saddle, pedaling hard, and the front wheel gets super light. Mm, yeah. Mountain bikers might like that. Some of us, I'm, I'm tall and I wish I could do better wheelies, yeah. but <laughs> that's, that maybe that's a personal problem. Definitely advantages for climbing on technical terrain on mixed terrain. It, it's definitely an advantage to have decent traction with your front tire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, a, a, a tall rider fundamentally feels more vulnerable to they're just higher off the ground right feel more vulnerable in you know sort of high siding situations and and uh dropping down steep steep things of feeling like they're more likely to pitch over because they're right so much of them sticking up in the air and and so you know that was something that didn't exist of course when i first wrote zen in the art of mountain bike maintenance is the dropper posts you know which have Oh, right. Giant boon to tall, tall riders. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, talking about crank links, um, I think you started making custom crank links in like 2008. And I saw that you have some that are as long as 220 millimeters long. Is What is like the limit, would you say, for mountain biking specifically in terms of like a long crank and, you know, getting hung up on rocks and things like that? Well, the limitation for getting hung up on rocks is the combination of the crank length and the bottom bracket height. True. Yep. If you make the bike, design the bike to the to for the longer crank, then you don't have any different clearance issues. I mean, that's what we do with mm-hmm. our bikes. Both the Zen Custom ones and the Clydesdales are designed with quite a bit higher bottom bracket than standard because okay because we're planning on the pedal at the bottom of the stroke being no lower to the ground than I see average bike would have. Right. So from that perspective, you know, obviously if you're putting a long, if you're just buying a crank from us and sticking it on your existing bike, yeah, you're going to have some (laughs) clearance. Can't, you don't want to go up very much, you know, maybe 10 millimeter Mm -hmm. on crank length for that reason from the perspective of there are some fundamental things that people won't don't think about that that a long crank really benefits a mountain biker and one is when you're descending in technical terrain Mm -hmm. feet are much further apart you have a much longer stance oh right supporting you and um and so the um you know just like you don't you know, if you're if you're playing football and somebody's zooming at you, you know, you don't keep your feet close together to avoid getting knocked over. You know, you put your mm-hmm. right increase the length of your stance so that you can break. Mm-hmm. And so, so when you're standing out of the saddle and descending technical stuff, it's great having that long platform. Right, and and a long sustained climb is also, you know, assuming you have the legs long enough. To handle the long crank, you have tremendous leverage and 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 it's great. And then those single, like what we were talking about, like when you're wheelie up a little bit and do a single oomph over a rock or a root or, mm-hmm. or a stump or something, that's that's benefited by standing out on the end of a long crank and making that one stroke be right really make a difference. Where I think it's not a great thing is when there's constant with a mountain bike there's much more change in cadence mm-hmm. right dropping down into gullies and up and down and you know all that sort of stuff and to be able to spin up and down in 
in in terms of cadence, that's enhanced with a shorter crank. Hmm. Okay. It's uh, it depends on your your physiology, your style of riding, and the kind of rides that you do. Mm-hmm. Even though, like a downhiller, a lot of the downhiller is a lot of that's coasting and would benefit from this longer stance. On the other hand, mm-hmm. all this spinning up and spinning down, you know, that's right. And so, on balance, I think a downhiller is going to be better off with a shorter crank. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. How tall is the tallest rider you've you've built a bike for? Seven foot two. Seven foot two. Wow. Was that particularly difficult, or are you able to kind of scale up what you do for for riders of other heights? Well, yeah, it's particularly difficult <laughs> <laughs> to make that bike not shimmy. You got to use enormously large diameter tubes. Hmm. You know, when I started this business. Even mountain bikes had level top tubes. Mm-hmm. Seat tubes were a lot longer for the for a given height of handlebar. If you have a level top tube, your seat tube's a lot longer. Standover height is right for stuff. And mm-hmm. and um, you know BMX bikes were the only bikes with a sloping top tube back then. And then mm. fortunately, mountain bikes mountain bikes really pushed a lot of things that that benefited everybody and that are benefiting everybody in all types of bikes now whether it's road gravel cyclocross track everything and those are getting away from lugs because you people wanted the sloping top tube and wanted all these different angles that didn't exist in lugs Hmm. once lugs then you can go to welded construction or fillet braze construction like we were doing at tom ritchie's Mm -hmm. Allows you to, to use different tube shapes, different tube diameters, any angle you want, all that sort of thing. So those are things, all of which I took advantage of. We were the first ones to use a one and an eighth inch diameter steering tube on a road bike because that mm. bikes and it made sense for tall riders that we need, wanted to have a bigger head tube so that we got a bigger top tube, bigger down. Right. It would twist and be so flimsy. And mm-hmm. Shortening the seat tube and sloping the top tube meant that for the same effective horizontal top tube, the actual tube was shorter until it gets to become a perpendicular bisector. The, the shortest distance between those lines, you know, between those points is reduced by dropping that top tube. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the stiffness of, of anything, the stiffness of a tube or anything goes as the cube of its length. So, so if you can decrease the length of the tube, but have the same effective fit, then you've by a, you know you've made a huge difference in the stiffness, and so those mm-hmm. are things that we and then also incorporating more more of the height of the seat height in the crank length means that we can shorten the seat tube from the bottom too, raising the bottom bracket higher, which shortens mm-hmm. the tube as well and shortens the chain stays a little bit too, and so every tube we're able to make shorter other than the head tube. Mm. And that bigger and bigger, and then and and then we make the seat tube as big as we can, so we can use the you know again mountain bikes push the limits with the diameters of the seat posts, and we could get right posts that were stiff enough, even though there was a lot more of it sticking out of the bike. Mm-hmm. But the limitation, you know, and, and back in the day we were making the forks too, so it wasn't really oh wow all the bike got. But then then once everybody wanted a carbon fork. Then you're limited by the length of the ore and with a mountain bike, it's a suspension fork. Then you're limited by the um, by the length of the steering tube that the manufacturer, mm-hmm. which on mountain bikes is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. It's getting oh. hard to deal with that problem for really tall bikes because that you know Fox just this past year again just shortened the all huh. tubes so much and it's just like. It's very frustrating. Why is that? I mean, because that's something that people are going to cut anyway. So it seems like they could just make it as long as they want. Or do you actually have to adjust where the taper portion of it is? Oh, it's entirely it's entirely to save money on. <laughs> wow, this material and your yeah. smaller everything. You know, your warehouse space is greater because the boxes aren't as big. All that. <laughs> wow. Seems like not a big advantage. Yeah, they're saving a few pennies, but yeah, making it tough on on the tall riders. And then early 
suspension forks actually had pinch bolts that pinched the crown onto the steering tube. So, mm-hmm. you know, anything like that is long since gone. You know, they're going to, they're going to make these assemblies of the, of the fork crown and steering tube in massive quantities. And they're not mm, right. Allow, oh, we'll make a couple thousand of them with a longer steer. That's just not going to happen. And mm, yeah. And so with carbon forks, finally, after three years of development, we just come up with our own fork, which oh wow, we went way beyond the ISO standards. You know, ISO sets, this, sets these standards for safety to be able to sell a fork. You have to show that it, that it withstands a certain number of cycles at a certain load level and, and mm-hmm. different things at the brake. You know, now with the disc brake, the bit, that part of the fork is particularly vulnerable because it's trying to, you know, break the bottom of the left leg off, basically, that mm-hmm. is. And, and uh, uh, this, you know, steering tube, all, all these, there's all these things required by ISO. And, but since we're making bikes for really huge people and the ones that we want to have these, you know, we have a 500 millimeter long steering tube on that on that fork well 300 millimeters is standard now maybe 350 now with gravel bikes that's that's become so but we know that not only people buying our bikes with those are very people that are likely to buy those as aftermarket mm-hmm. are be really tall the taller you are the heavier you're gonna be and then right using it on a stock size bike then they're going to be stacking up a bunch of spacers too so the, mm-hmm. a lot of that steering tube unsupported above the top headset cup oh, right. is all, all those things keep me awake at night. And <laughs> so I, uh, so, you know, we, we went fit beyond, we took the ISO standards and went 50% higher and made oh, wow. the fork handle all these things. So, so we had to, you know, everything you'll, if you ever see the fork, you'll see it's just a lot bigger blades than you see on mm-hmm. anybody else's carbon fork and the, the wall thickness of the steering tube is greater since we don't get to change that diameter that's fixed by the headsets and everything. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. So you, you mentioned too, taller riders tend to be heavier. Um, and so you also design bikes for big riders. And so is that kind of the same approach and the same thing that you're looking at in terms of like the strength of the frame and, and those sorts of things for heavier riders? Yes. And we, you know, we been through the ringer with this over the 40 years, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. we have a few six foot eight, 350 pound customers who, even though mm. 350 pounds, they can spend their, put enormous number of miles on their bikes and go mm-hmm. right up in the mountains. And they don't seem to, you know, maybe they drop for a while over the summer to 320 or something, but it's not like they're dropping mm-hmm. 200 pounds. They're, yeah. they're just big men and right. incredibly strong. And all these things mm. you just wouldn't think would happen, but you know, where they'll, you know, the torque is extremely high in a really low gear. So people are probably familiar with that, with mountain bikers with breaking chains and things like that. And mm-hmm. gear. Yeah. But when you go to, you know, really small front chain ring and really large rear cog and you stomp on that, the torque at the rear wheel is tremendous. Well, if you're 350 pounds and you can put out 2000 watts of power, well, you're going to find that these guys will rip the spokes right out of the hub flange or yank the spoke nipples right out of the rims or that. Mm-hmm. just break the free hub body so that the free wheel just spins straight forward. <laughs> you know, all the kind of things that you hear about happening with people on tandems, mm-hmm. people on a tandem weigh about the same as one of these kind of, these guys, you know, yeah, yeah. Their, their power is probably similar. And so the braking issues, the, all those sorts of things. I mean, we have a customer who would, you know, six foot eight, 350 pound customer who would go on six week long tours in the Pyrenees and the Alps and stuff. And when the disc came out, he thought that was great because he was no longer exploding the tires because his rims would get <laughs> brakes, you know, that, yeah. Ooh. Well, he was 
the original Shimano road disc brakes, he was going through pads every single day. Oh my goodness. Replacing pads every day. And so wow. things have improved, things have gotten better, but but the kind of stuff that these guys deal with, most people don't have any any idea about. And it, hmm. so when we say with our Glidesdale bikes that, you know, these will take riders up to 450 pounds, we really mean it. And, and it's been, hmm. we select all the components and we know the frame's going to take it and we know the fork's going to take it, but, but we, we also, you know, we don't put parts on there, the seat posts and the stems and the handlebars and, and the hubs and the rims and the spokes and everything mm. we thought about in terms of, of what's going to happen. And, you know, we have, you know, anecdotally heard about guys who are trying to, you know, live a healthier life. They get into their 40s and 50s and they discovered that they're 500 pounds. You know, and they mm. realize there's no such thing as an 80 year old that's 500 pounds. You know, if, right. If you want to live on, you got to do something about it. And so mm -hmm. they'll be too embarrassed to be seen on the seen out riding mm. bulk, you know, hanging off the bike. So they go mm -hmm. like 2 a.m. Well, mm. you guy riding at 2 a.m. who breaks a bunch of crap on his bike, he's not going to be up yeah. very long if he's got to call his right at 2 a.m to rescue him and so mm -hmm. that's the kind of you know at the end point of the customers that we're thinking of that we we want to make sure that these things hold up to them and that they don't have to right you know yeah yeah well and i imagine a lot of this is applicable to like more aggressive bikes like mountain bikes in particular um and downhill like you were kind of mentioning i mean those bikes need to be very strong very reliable and yeah it seems like a lot of that there's a lot of crossover between the two there is we've we've certainly benefited from the existence of of those extreme extreme uses of the bike of downhill yeah you know has created the development of of wider hubs for instance that 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 can support the the structure mm. better and and um, and stronger free hub bodies and and um, you know spoke technology like spokes I think people you know like what you, the spokes that you see on a lot of or used to see I don't know I don't look at wheelchairs in a long time but it used to be wheelchairs always had these really really thick twelve gauge spokes mm -hmm. and that you know that was sort of the assumption that you made. With oh, if you were on a really really strong wheel, you're gonna you're gonna get a really really fat spoke. Well, if you look at downhillers' wheels, they're not like that. They're double butted spoke, mm. and the reason yeah. is that is that you want if the spoke is too stiff, it puts much more strain on the rim because mm. as the you know you put a tremendous load on that wheel, and as it rolls along, it gets slightly D shaped at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Well, if the isn't able to sort of stretch a little bit and move with that, mm -hmm. then it loses contact. The spoke nipple loses contact with the rim for that instant. Mm. It gets flattened out. And then when it comes past that, past the bottom dead center, it springs back and it goes whap against the spoke nipple. Mm. It's yeah. Constant boom, 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 which fatigues a rim really fast and ends up mm. cracking all the drive side spoke nipples. And so, Whereas a double-butted spoke, you'd think, well, that's they make that for lightness. Well, they make that for for actually longevity of the wheel too. Hmm. That yeah. spoke can then stretch and move with the wheel. You get a you get a longer-lasting wheel, and um, uh, so you know all these things we've that we see happening in downhill help us. And you know, of course, when like when the the fork steers get ridiculously short. Our only alternative for really tall people is to use a super long travel fork because we can't get a long enough steer tube. So thank God those exist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, given sort of your background and knowledge of physics, I mean, it's clear the way you describe these things 
um, that, that you're looking at it from that physics perspective. And one of the topics that I know you've written a good bit about is bike tire rolling resistance. And so I'm curious to know, I think a lot of our listeners too, want to know like what are the, kind of the main factors that influence a bike tire's rolling resistance? Well, I'd say there's four things. One is something you can do something about, which is pre- tire pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other built into the tire. So one is the casing, one is the tread okay. pound, and one is the tread design. Mm. And is that sort of the order that it that it goes to, like in terms of importance? Yeah, I think so. Yes. Okay. I mean, it could be argued between tread design and if the tread design is really huge, you know, have really big knobs compared mm, to, yeah. obviously that's going to absorb more energy. So right. gray area there. The other thing is, is to, is tire diameter. Okay. Say so, so, um, the casing is really critical because, mm. you know, it's cheaper to make a tire with much thicker threads in the court. Th- thick. Okay. Yeah. The casing. And, um, mm-hmm. and if the carcass of the tire, you know, it's, it's listed in TPI threads per inch. So if you have a mm-hmm. TPI, it means that those threads are fat because if they're stacked right. with each other, not very many of, not very many threads are going to fit in one inch. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and then, the, and that means that if the thread is stiffer, is thicker, it's going to be stiffer. So as, as that casing encounters a bump if the threads can't move properly with it then the casing Mm -hmm. the the casing is stiffer which means that it will force the entire bike and rider up Hmm. where more supple one with which with much thinner threads in the casing it will be able to absorb that At at the same tire pressure it will be able to absorb more of that bump and it will lift the rider less, which obviously the more you lift the bike and rider, that was energy that, that assuming, unless, except when you're going downhill, when you're going uphill or flat, that energy came out of the rider's legs. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And if you, the more that you send the bike up and down, the, the more that's just energy loss that the rider yeah, put yeah. the bike up to that speed. And hmm. back when I was racing on national team, you know, we believed that, you know, the bike just felt really lively when you pumped it up, pumped the tires like to 135 pounds. Mm-hmm. You had these really skinny 19 millimeter tires, 135 pounds. And it felt like it was really <laughs> <laughs> yeah. felt fast because it was really bouncy, but it was the, right. you know, cause it was bouncing along the road, you know, and you were waiting hmm this energy that could have been absorbed in the tire if you'd had a bigger tire at lower pressure even with pacing mm. construction and everything you you could have you could have gone much faster and you know it's a shame that i didn't realize that back then <laughs> <laughs> yeah right it is kind of counterintuitive and it's also it's interesting because i think for a lot of us we tend to focus on the tread pattern and just you know we we think we can look at a tire and have an idea of like whether it's going to roll fast or not, but it sounds like there are a, a lot of factors involved, and and some of them uh, maybe are even more important than the tread pattern itself. Yes, and and another thing, also, so basically your thread per inch, but you kind of got to look at the casing, you know, just get mm-hmm. sense of looking at casings and looking at oh those are really fine threads because. Some manufacturers, you know, a tire is made, a standard clincher tire, the casing starts basically on one side and it wraps around the bead, over the side of the tire, around the bead, up over the top of the tire, around the bead, mm-hmm. on the other side, back across the center. So that means across okay. you got three layers of casing and on the sides you got two layers of casing. Okay. So threads per inch is supposed to be the number of threads per inch in one layer of that casing. But some tire mm-hmm. manufacturers, because they know that people don't buy their tires, because if they know that the threads per inch, they'll say, "Oh, well, it's." They'll multiply it by three because they'll say, "Well, under the under the tread, <laughs> it's yeah. you know, seven times three or whatever that is." You know, two hundred yeah. is is the 
is the and and so you go oh like wow that's a 200 tpi <laughs> this 200 well uh it's not an apples to apples comparison so you need to get a sense for looking at the casing and seeing and and you mm-hmm. feel it too you know you go into a store and you feel you feel a cheap tire and you just feel the t- casing what that feels like compared to mm-hmm. Really expensive one for the same application. Say it's cross country, you know, it's a little different. Yeah. You know, where you're trying to have more toughness of the tire, but for you know, a really fine, fast cross country tire is going to have a really supple casing. Mm-hmm. And you also, generally, it's going to the casing will be thinner then because of thinner, thinner right threads as well, which means that it will also be lighter, which that's another benefit. But but um, then the the tread compound is something that you cannot look at. You cannot tell how fast a tire is. <laughs> right. How tread compound is by looking at it. It's just, and in general, what I will say is that, you know, as the cafe standards, which are the, the, the standards, the mileage standards that the government sets for cars, mm-hmm. as the cafe standards get higher, one of the things that the car manufacturers do is put greater pressure on the tire manufacturers to make faster rolling tires hmm. to bring to bring you know to save them having to do as much engineering of the engine and whatever to to get that right that better yeah and so that's why the really the tire brands that are known to have really fast tread compounds often they're German guys doing it who started it hmm. because Continental is one of the only brands in the bike business that is a car tire brand as well as a as a um, that's a premium car tire brand that's been under pressure from the car manufacturers to get hmm. lower rolling resistance. So then they have all these engineers who've really worked on these tread compounds because the hmm. fundamental thing is is called hysteresis it's basically you know if you have a super ball and you drop it the thing that makes it a super ball is it'll bounce almost as high as as it right that means it's got very low hysteresis so as it goes through a cycle of of um elasticity of being deformed and then returning to its original shape very little Mm -hmm. lost most most rubber balls are not super balls. That's why super balls are called super. <laughs> yeah, that's why they're super. And so the same thing goes with a tread compound that as the tread gets deformed by the road, how much energy is lost in heating that compound versus how, you know, before it returns mm-hmm. its original shape. And so, but if you made, took a super ball compound and put it on a tire, mm-hmm. there'd be little, very little hysteresis loss. On the other hand, it would probably be really poor traction too, because it'd be too. Hmm. So there's this balancing act you have to go through. And what all right. done with tires, bike tires, was they, you know, sort of took available rubbers, and that's just the deal you got. You you picked a softer rubber if you wanted better traction. Well, the softer rubber is going to be slower rolling because you got more hysteresis loss. So mm-hmm. then. It wasn't until, you know, all these smart guys started figuring out all these different compounding things they could do where you could get a little bit of both. You could you could have it soft, hmm. you could still have lower hysteresis loss. And so so the so Continental, you know, then Schwalbe and specialized, you know, take the engineers that you yeah. Continental and they develop, you know, the specialized Gripton thread and you know, those were the guys that worked on the Continental Black Chili tread compound, and then and then you've got the the one at Schwalbe, which I can't remember what it that that compound is called, but you know those are generally you know in my testing. So I you know for my articles for Vela News, I've done a lot of rolling resistance testing, sending to the best uh, independent rolling resistance testing lab in the world, which is Wheel Energy mm. in in uh, Nastoya, Finland, and um, the uh those compounds if you if you if you're able to um make the other variables the same mm-hmm. compounds will rise to the top the continental black hmm. okay Gripton and the and the schwalbe whatever it's called and um 
And then, you know, then the next thing is tread design, which, you know, you, you have, you have to, if you want, if you want the fastest rolling tire, then you're going to just going to make, mm-hmm. but, but that's not going to give you much traction. So, right. so you have this trade off of what, um, of what you're, and, and the more, the more tread you've got on it, the individual knobs are going to flex and the more energy is going to be absorbed, hmm. the lower, the slower the tire will roll, the more rolling resistance it has. Yeah. Yeah. So finally, I want to ask you about your latest book, The Haywire Heart, which examines heart conditions in athletes. What led you to write about this subject? Well, I developed a heart arrhythmia. I mean, yeah. I <laughs> endurance sports, you know, and I tended to race year round. I, I raced cyclocross in the fall and winter. I raced early winter and then I raced cross country ski racing, doing these ski marathons all over the world mm. out into March. And then I'd be doing in training for cyclocross, I'd be doing a number of hill climbs and road races, some mountain bike races. And I was under the impression that I think a lot of masters endurance athletes are that if you're 55 and you're beating all the 35 year olds that mm-hmm. you're somehow immune from your body falling apart in ways that you didn't expect. Mm, and, yeah. you know, just like even though you're 55 and, you, and you're super fit, you grab your skin on your hand and it's super thin and compared to a, a baby or then even a 20-year-old, you know, mm. kind of process is happening all over your body that you're losing the you're losing the elasticity of your tissues all over your body. Hmm. Wow. And with your heart, you know, if you're a 20 year old and you ask for this tremendous amount of blood volume from your heart in order, cause you're going to, you know, do all sorts of endurance training and racing, or you're going to climb Mount Everest with that oxygen or whatever you're going to do, mm-hmm. your heart will get bigger in response to that. And, you know, and the, the things that we all know about where you're, your resting heart rate goes down because you're pu- pushing out so much blood with each pump that you're mm-hmm. that you're lower heart rate and all these things that we associate with being better fitness and all that. Right. If you're 20 and you then detrain yourself and go, you you stop doing those things. Your heart will return to its original shape. Okay. In your 50s, 60s, and you're asking for that similar kind of blood volume in answering that demand to get bigger your heart being less flexible there will be micro tearing that's going to be happening in the in the heart in order like that and then as that heals there will be scarring in the heart you'll have little scars in there Hmm. the way the the heart way electric the electrical impulse moves through to to um moves through the heart to cause the contraction it moves like a smooth wave across it. And if you mm-hmm. water moving smoothly across sand, like flowing smoothly across sand, and then you throw a rock in it, it will suddenly get eddy currents around that rock. You'll get, yeah. And, and that's the same thing that happens with this scarring that's happening in your, in the, in your heart that mm. the electrical current can't just move through smoothly. There'll be, There'll be eddy currents formed around these things, and that's the substrate for arrhythmia. And then, and some of these arrhythmias can be very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. V tachycardia being one that that's what killed Pheidippides when he came and ran from to bring the news of the Battle of Marathon, you know? Oh, we wow. Yeah. Marathon, not because the, the Greeks, <laughs> the Persians at the Battle of Marathon, we know the word marathon because Pheidippides died running 26.2 miles to bring the news of that. And right. we him as having been a, well, he just didn't know how to pace himself. Well, he was a full 43 <laughs> year old full-time running messenger. That's what he did. Ran. Uh, okay. He was the quintessential masters endurance athlete and he died of VTAC from that. And, hmm. and so anyway, most most arrhythmias are are more mellow atrial fibrillation you're not going to die from but it's going to cause you other problems so you can you can get a stroke from it and things like that and and 
And when I developed arrhythmia, I looked around and realized some of the guys that I've been racing with, particularly cross-country ski racing, who just disappeared. And there was this there was this rumor about them. They'd been super, super fast. And all of a sudden, they were just gone. I was like, how could they stop doing mm. this? You know, they're so good. Yeah. And there had been these rumors about something with their heart. And I... And then, you know, I followed up with them, like, what happened with you? And it was all arrhythmias. Mm-hmm. And then I, and there was no data in this country. That's why I wrote the book, because, because any data, American data at the time about arrhythmias was all on, you know, cardiac patients. These are people that you, yeah. the risk factors, you know, smoking, diabetes, overweight, lack of exercise, all those sorts of things. And, but in, in Scandinavia, there were studies done of over 50,000 people each of, of people doing these two ski races I used to do. One in Sweden called the 90K called the Vasalopet and another mm-hmm. 65K called the Birkebeiner Rennet in Norway. And those studies showed that they had 30% higher incidence of competitors in that race had 30% higher incidence of atrial fibrillation than the rest of the Scandinavian population. Oh, wow. First, secondly, the faster they were, the higher the rate of atrial fibrillation. And thirdly, the more times they'd done the race, the higher the rate of atrial fibrillation. These races, oh my goodness, 16,000 people do them each year. So you could follow a lot of people. Yeah. And so that was very eye opening for me. And that's what got me to write that book. Cause I was like, people need to know this. <laughs> this is, yeah. You know, people who are overweight and couch potatoes are shunned by our society. You know, mm-hmm. they don't get acknowledged when they go to go to parties for, wow, that's so awesome how how <laughs> and how little exercise you do. But the person right. in their 50s and 60s and they're winning winning bike races, they're like, wow, that's amazing. You're just. Yeah. But the risk factor is similar, you know, in yeah. the U, U-shape curve of uh, activity level versus versus um, morbidity, you know, you have very high morbidity at very low activity levels, but then as you mm-hmm. increase your activity level, it, it comes down to where, you know, but the trough where your lowest morbidity tends to be, you know, people maybe walking an hour a day, not people doing, you know, extreme exercise. Right starts going back up again and never reaches maybe as high as the other side of the U, but, but you get um, similar morbidity from, from continuing beyond the throttle your whole life. So, yeah. Well, so in writing the book and, and doing that research, did that cause you to change your habits or your fitness routine or anything? It sure did. Cause, cause I, my arrhythmia is something called multifocal atrial tachycardia, which okay feels like a fish flopping around in my chest when I go into the arrhythmia, but mm. have AFib, which AFib is where it's an uncontrolled, uh, what's the word for it? Just um, random mm. atria of the upper, upper chambers of the heart, okay. which tends to allow clots to happen on the top of the surface of the blood. Mm-hmm. And those clots be sent to your brain and get get a stroke. And, and Oh my goodness. And so the way that that's combated is by they give you anticoagulants, blood thinners, mm-hmm. to prevent that from happening. Well, you can't be a mountain biker and be on blood thinners because right. it's your head. You can have a closed, closed bleed inside your head that won't stop and you'll die from. Mm. Similar, mm. bang your hip really hard and you end up with a bruise that won't end, you know. And so, yeah. so I don't want any of those things. <laughs> right i um i for instance i no longer i certainly no longer race at anything mm-hmm. i cross-country skiing you know i no longer ski skate at altitude i just classic ski or or okay do now most of the time is backcountry ski and not with 30 year olds i go with people mine <laughs> or you just yeah. play and rather than always being the first one at the top, like I used to be, I'm always the last one. <laughs> yeah. And, and as far as bike riding, you know, I still want to go on these great rides in the mountains, but if I do on a regular bike, I get, I go into arrhythmia. So I ride an e- mm. 
And that okay. tremendous boon for my business too, because I started building e-bikes five years ago in order to make one for myself mm-hmm. and huge head start on everybody, all the other, because <laughs> we've been doing it for a while. We understand it. We know how to make e-bikes. We we're, you know, we just know all about it. And mm-hmm. now it's become a big thing in this country. It's been in yeah. big for a long time, but it's starting to be big in this country. And, and, you know, there's the user conflicts that are happening with trail access and stuff and mountain biking that we'll be dealing with for some time to go. But mm-hmm. it's opened up this whole thing to me and, and that all these climbs that I used to do, a thousand times that I've done some of these climbs around here. And now I notice things that I never noticed before. <laughs> Writing, mm. <laughs> oh, look at the grain in that granite on this road cut. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they put that there. Well, it's always because <laughs> you were going so hard. So, yeah. in quality of life, I'm not regretting it. I mean, it's really mm. quality of life, and I'm doing the things I want to do. They're just different, and and I think I'm going to last longer because I've made those changes. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, Leonard, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. You're a wealth of knowledge on a number of topics, and yeah, thank you. Really enjoyed it. You, Jeff. Well, you can find out more uh, about Zen Cycles on the website, zencycles.com, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.